Picture this, if you will. You're working at the local emergency department when a 68-year-old male is brought in by his family, primarily for blurry vision and confusion. He awoke this morning with a headache and complained that he was unable to read the newspaper. Symptoms temporarily improved after he awoke, but began to get worse as the day went on. His family says that he has no history of dementia or cognitive impairment, but that as his headache grew worse, he would pause multiple times in the middle of what he was doing, not knowing where he was. Vitals reveal a blood pressure of 222 over 110 millimeters mercury in both arms, and his family confirms that he has a history of essential hypertension, but that he ran out of his medications three weeks ago because he missed an appointment. On initial evaluation, the patient is mumbling incoherently, but does not appear to have any other focal neurologic deficits. What diagnosis do you suspect? And how do you plan to confirm your diagnosis? And welcome to Audio Bricks. I'm Arjun Iyer, bringing topics from cardiology from our bricks to your ears. After completing this section, you'll be able to 1. Define hypertensive emergency and distinguish it from severe asymptomatic hypertension. 2. Describe the various ways that patients with hypertensive emergency can present. 3. Describe the characteristic histopathologic changes seen in blood vessels in a hypertensive emergency. 4. List characteristic exam, lab, and imaging findings associated with the different hypertensive emergencies. And 5. Discuss the management of hypertensive emergencies. Part 1. What is hypertensive emergency? Hypertensive emergency, previously known as malignant hypertension, occurs in patients with a systolic blood pressure greater than 180 or a diastolic blood pressure greater than 120 millimeters mercury. But the measured blood pressure only tells part of this story. What makes hypertension an emergency is when it causes acute end organ damage, specifically neurologic, cardiovascular, or renal. And this is important because patients with very poorly controlled blood pressure may meet the blood pressure criteria of greater than 180 systolic or greater than 120 diastolic. It's depressingly common. I see patients like this all the time in the ER. But without an acutely failing organ system, it's neither classified nor treated as an emergency. This used to be known as hypertensive urgency, but it's now referred to as severe asymptomatic hypertension. Now, this term is a bit confusing, since patients with very high blood pressure may complain of nonspecific symptoms that they attribute to blood pressure, usually headache or malaise. And this is a bit controversial. See, there isn't great evidence that high blood pressure on its own causes symptoms that aren't related to end-organ dysfunction. Blood pressure should ideally be measured when you're calm and relaxed to get a sense of what the baseline blood pressure is before your system gets all full of adrenaline and cortisol or whatnot. But since everyone and their mother has an automatic home blood pressure cuff, some of which aren't very good, people often have the bad habit of measuring their blood pressure at times when they're feeling slightly under the weather, which of course will give a higher reading than if they were feeling perfectly fine. And then they'll measure it again to see if it was correct, but since now they're anxious, it'll read even higher. Then they'll come to the ER where people are bleeding and screaming all over the place, and now their blood pressure goes up even more. You get the idea. For all intents and purposes, best evidence shows that unless hypertension is causing acute organ damage, it's virtually asymptomatic. Now, that being said, assuming the blood pressure is measured correctly, both severe asymptomatic hypertension and hypertensive emergency are concerning, but the urgency with which they need to be managed is very different. 
A hypertensive emergency requires immediate hospitalization and acutely lowering the blood pressure with IV antihypertensives or titratable drips in order to stop ongoing organ damage. Severe asymptomatic hypertension, on the other hand, requires very frequent outpatient visits to the primary care physician to frequently adjust oral medications. Because unless you have a very good reason to do so, abruptly lowering a patient's blood pressure can cause either cerebral or cardiac ischemia in patients whose blood pressures are chronically diseased and are actually used to the abnormally elevated pressure in order to keep their organs perfused. So, to review, the money question for this section is, what is the difference between severe asymptomatic hypertension and hypertensive emergency? While both asymptomatic hypertension and hypertensive emergency are characterized by a blood pressure above 180 systolic or 120 diastolic, hypertensive emergency is defined by acute signs of end organ damage. The good news is, amongst hypertensive patients, the incidence of hypertensive emergency has declined from about 7% to about 1%. And this may be attributable to the improved management of chronic hypertension and the swift treatment of severe asymptomatic hypertension before the development of end organ damage. Part 2. How do patients with hypertensive emergency present? To meet the criteria for hypertensive emergency, patients must have evidence of end organ damage, specifically to the central nervous system, cardiovascular system, or kidneys. Hypertensive emergency of the central nervous system presents in one of three ways, vision loss, focal neurologic symptoms, or acute generalized neurologic symptoms. Blurry vision may arise from papilledema, but papilledema is more useful as an observed sign on physical exam that hypertension is emergent rather than as a visual symptom to rely on. In rare cases, patients may develop acute retinal hemorrhages that present as floaters in their field of vision. Focal and generalized neurologic symptoms typically arise from one of three phenomena, ischemic and hemorrhagic strokes, or a generalized elevation in intracranial pressure known as hypertensive encephalopathy. Ischemic and hemorrhagic strokes can lead to the acute onset of focal neurologic deficits, like difficulty speaking and limb weakness. Hypertensive encephalopathy, on the other hand, more commonly presents with confusion and visual symptoms. Both hemorrhagic strokes and hypertensive encephalopathy frequently lead to headaches, nausea, and vomiting, though with a hemorrhagic stroke, the onset of symptoms is typically a lot more abrupt. In both cases, as the intracranial pressure rises to dangerous levels, patients can develop seizures, coma, and in the case of intracranial hemorrhage, cerebral herniation. Alright, pop quiz time. Why do patients with hypertensive emergency present with blurry vision? The answer is papilledema due to increased intracranial pressure. Of note, the obstetric emergency eclampsia occurs in severely hypertensive women during the second half of pregnancy and is characterized by the neurologic finding of seizures. And while it's associated with hypertension, it's not generally to the same extent as other hypertensive emergencies. Hypertensive emergency of the cardiovascular system is also very common and generally presents in one of two ways chest pain from the increased work the heart has to perform, or acutely decompensated heart failure. A patient may have typical anginal chest pain radiating to the jaw or arms, and this is especially common in patients with pre-existing coronary artery disease. It means that their myocardium doesn't get enough oxygen to keep up with the increased consumption required to pump against the increased arterial pressure. If their heart simply can't do the work, 
Well, then they'll go into acute decompensated heart failure, frequently presenting with dyspnea from acute pulmonary edema. And this is often a very abrupt and very scary presentation because when you can't breathe, you panic. And when you panic, your adrenaline starts pumping, your blood pressure increases even more, the heart has even more work to do that it simply isn't capable of, and more fluid backs up into the lungs. It's a vicious cycle that spirals out of control very fast. The least common but arguably most dangerous type of cardiovascular hypertensive emergency is the infamous aortic dissection, in which the relentless pounding of the heartbeat at high pressures can actually tear the inner lining off the inside of the aorta. And this causes what's typically described as sharp, tearing chest or abdominal pain. There are several red flag signs caused by the dissection flap occluding branches of the aorta, such as stroke-like symptoms from carotid occlusion and pulse deficit or paresthesias in one or more of the limbs caused by either subclavian or common iliac occlusion. Aortic dissections due to hypertension most often begin in the abdomen, but if the dissection extends proximally towards the heart, it can cause acute aortic regurgitation by disrupting the valve, myocardial infarction by including the coronaries, and, in particularly nasty cases, cardiac tamponade if the dissection flap ruptures and bleeds out into the pericardium. Renal hypertensive emergencies, on the other hand, are much less dramatic. They basically just cause acute kidney injury. It's generally asymptomatic, though patients can occasionally have pinkish or frothy urine from either hematuria or proteinuria, respectively. Generally speaking, though, renal hypertensive emergency will be detected on laboratory evaluation primarily. Part 3. What is the pathophysiology of hypertensive emergency? Multiple factors often contribute to the development of severely elevated blood pressure, including hypertensive emergency. And these generally occur in patients with pre-existing hypertension, but they can also happen to patients who are otherwise healthy. If a patient has no prior history of hypertension and is only diagnosed when they present with a hypertensive emergency, they may also simply have had long-standing uncontrolled hypertension that predisposes them to end-organ damage. But it's important to note that if the initial presentation of a patient with hypertension is as a hypertensive emergency, an underlying etiology of secondary hypertension is more likely like renal artery stenosis, or hyperaldosteronism, or a sclerodermal renal crisis. Now, the pathophysiology of a hypertensive emergency is complex, involving multiple changes in innate blood pressure regulation, and to some extent, it does depend on the specific organ system affected. But there are a few common themes. In general, hypertensive emergencies are thought to result from an abrupt increase in systemic vascular resistance, mediated by humoral vasoconstrictors such as catecholamines, angiotensin II, and endothelin. The rapid increase in blood pressure leads to endothelial injury, the activation of the coagulation cascade, and ultimately, narrowing of the arterioles. And when arterioles narrow, the heart has to push the same amount of blood through narrower spaces, meaning that the peripheral vascular resistance, and therefore the blood pressure, will increase as well. Another vicious cycle, which is something of a common theme in this section. Now, the organs typically affected in hypertensive emergencies, the brain, heart, and kidneys, are generally pretty good at operating under a range of blood pressures due to a phenomenon called autoregulation. This means that even if the blood pressure increases or decreases slightly, the organ itself can ensure a fairly stable blood flow and blood pressure to meet its own needs, rather than simply taking what the cardiovascular system gives it. In contrast, in a hypertensive emergency, the blood pressure is so high that autoregulation fails, 
leading to abnormally high blood pressure and flow that can actually harm these organs. Bob Quiz Time. What effect does failure of autoregulation have on tissue perfusion in hypertensive emergencies? Failure of autoregulation leads to unregulated increases in blood pressure and flow that can actually damage the end organs. Now, when it comes to end organ damage, the pathophysiology depends a lot on which organ is affected. One pretty common mechanism of end organ damage is increased arterial wall stress. While the arteries are normally pretty elastic, if the blood pressure gets too high, they can be stretched beyond their limits and actually injured. This is the mechanism seen with retinal and intracranial hemorrhages, as well as aortic dissection. With the latter, the sheer stress of blood on an already diseased region of the aorta, or one prone to turbulent blood flow, causes the tunica intima to tear, and the extravasation of blood between the aortic layers causes the separation to spread proximally and distally. And this creates what's known as a false lumen that runs parallel to the true aortic lumen. We also talked about arterial or narrowing briefly, which can lead to the ischemic effects of ischemic stroke, myocardial infarction, and acute kidney injury. So, how do the blood vessels narrow, you might ask? Well, there are two main histologic changes in vessels caused by severe hypertension, the more acute fibrinoid necrosis and hyperplastic arteriolosclerosis that results from severe chronic or subacute elevations in blood pressure. Fibrinoid necrosis occurs when extremely high arteriolar pressure damages endothelial cells, which makes the endothelium porous and leaky. This results in the accumulation of fibrinogen and plasma proteins within the vessel wall through the porous endothelium, which narrows the lumen. On an H&E stained slide, this appears as pinkish or eosinophilic proteinaceous deposits within the wall. In addition, the injured endothelium triggers platelet thrombus formation, which contributes to the luminal narrowing, ultimately resulting in total vascular occlusion, diminished end organ perfusion, and ultimately ischemic necrosis of the end organs. Hyperplastic arteriolosclerosis blah, words, is the proliferation prolifer- pro- <laughs> of arteriolar smooth muscle there we go, that occurs over a longer period of time. Prolonged severe hypertension causes multiple concentric layers of smooth muscle and basement membrane to stack up on top of each other, which may be studded with deposits of fibrin and platelets if fibrinoid necrosis is simultaneously present. This process produces a characteristic finding called onion skinning on an H&E stain, since the concentric layers and tiny lumen look a lot like the cross-section of an onion that's been chopped in half. Now, hyperplastic arterial sclerosis can occur on its own in long-standing chronic hypertension or concomitantly with fibrinoid necrosis in more acute hypertensive emergencies. Together, they narrow the vessel lumen, contributing to end-organ ischemia and, if diffusely present, global increases in systemic vascular resistance. So just to review, what are the characteristic vascular histologic changes in hypertensive emergency? And the answer is fibrinoid necrosis and hyperplastic arteriolosclerosis. Small vessel narrowing can also lead to mechanical destruction of red blood cells within damaged small size vessels as they try to squeeze on through. And this is called microangiopathic hemolysis, and it can sometimes lead to clinically significant anemia as well. The diagnosis is made on a peripheral blood smear, which will show fragmented red blood cells called schistocytes, which basically look like red blood cells that have been ripped in half. Now let's move on to the effects on the central nervous system, which often have to do with increased intracranial pressure. 
Since the brain is trapped inside a rigid bony cage known as the skull, autoregulation is super important to make sure that blood flow is stable. But when autoregulation fails and perfusion increases abnormally, it leads to leakage of fluid into the interstitium known as cerebral edema. And since the brain doesn't have room to expand, the intracranial pressure increases, which leads to the condition known as hypertensive encephalopathy. We already talked about hemorrhagic strokes, but increased ICP can also lead to ischemic strokes if the increased ICP impedes blood flow to certain parts of the brain. Basically, when the brain swells up like quick-rise dough in a jar, it can squish some of the cerebral blood vessels trapped in the skull with it, decreasing the cerebral perfusion pressure. Finally, we already talked a little bit about the mechanisms of cardiac effects of hypertensive emergency. One of the main mechanisms of severely elevated blood pressure is an increase in the systemic vascular resistance that spirals out of control with the progressive arteriolar necrosis and hyperplastic arteriolosclerosis that occurs. This increases cardiac work, or afterload, that the heart must overcome to pump blood forward. More work means more oxygen consumption, and when a patient already has diseased coronaries, the blood supply to the heart may not be sufficient for the increased oxygen and energy requirements. Acute heart failure and pulmonary edema occur when the heart's incapable of performing the increased work required to overcome the systemic vascular resistance, and the cardiac output decreases. Unfortunately, as patients develop respiratory failure secondary to pulmonary edema, they tend to panic, and the sympathetic surge that occurs further increases the peripheral vasoconstriction and therefore the systemic vascular resistance. Part 4. How do we diagnose hypertensive emergency? The diagnosis of hypertensive emergency requires two things, markedly elevated blood pressure and objective evidence of end-organ damage. So to review, what are the blood pressure criteria for diagnosing hypertensive emergency? Either a systolic blood pressure greater than 180 millimeters mercury or a diastolic blood pressure greater than 120 millimeters mercury. Good. Now, let's review what we went over in part two. What are the organ systems affected in hypertensive emergency? The central nervous system, cardiovascular system, and the kidneys. Exam findings in hypertensive emergency of the CNS include severe headache, visual changes, and either focal or generalized neurologic symptoms. A cardiovascular emergency might present with signs of pulmonary edema, like crackles, dyspnea, hypoxia, or, in the case of an aortic dissection, pulse deficits. Now, the retinal exam is important in evaluating hypertensive emergency, and yes, I know, it's a difficult exam. But it's actually pretty important, as it's one of the most sensitive indicators of an elevated intracranial pressure without actually performing a lumbar puncture. The eye is basically like the window into your brain. Very elevated blood pressure can dilate and rupture retinal blood vessels. But even more characteristically, papilledema reflects increased intracranial pressure. You can see it on fundoscopic exam as an optic disc with blurred margins or a swollen appearance, surrounded by engorged retinal veins. Labs and imaging studies provide the most conclusive evidence of hypertensive emergency. A hypertensive emergency involving the heart will generally present with an increased troponin and BNP. Hypertensive emergencies involving the kidneys will cause elevations in serum creatinine, a marker of acute kidney injury, and potentially even hematuria and proteinuria. And in both cases, the patient may develop anemia with schistocytes present on peripheral smear. An ECG may show evidence for myocardial ischemia, infarction, or left ventricular hypertrophy and strain, but remember, this isn't diagnostic.
Finally, imaging modalities can be helpful in diagnosing some of the most dangerous types of hypertensive emergency. A chest x-ray may show evidence of cardiomegaly or pulmonary edema, and an echocardiogram may document heart failure. A CT angiogram of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis is the gold standard diagnostic modality for aortic dissection. Now, for patients who present with signs of a neurologic emergency, a CT of the brain is basically required, since it can quickly evaluate for an intracranial hemorrhage. A follow-up MRI can evaluate for ischemic stroke, and certain types of hypertensive encephalopathy, like PRES or PRESS. But many times, all imaging studies will be negative, and the diagnosis of exclusion known as hypertensive encephalopathy is made if a patient has neurologic symptoms that resolve when the blood pressure decreases. Part 5. How do we manage hypertensive emergencies? The treatment of hypertensive emergencies depend on the specific type of organ damage to some extent, but the basics are the same. It always involves lowering the blood pressure rapidly, usually with titratable IV drips. Now, most hypertensive emergencies can be treated with IV nicardipine, a dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker, and this is particularly recommended when the central nervous system is involved, as it maintains consistent cerebrovascular blood flow. Beta blockers like labetalol and esmolol are particularly effective because they accomplish both alpha and beta sympathetic blockade, but they can exacerbate acute heart failure and should not be used in the acute phase of a myocardial infarction. These are the drugs of choice for aortic dissections, however, since lowering the heart rate is a major priority to slow the spread of the dissection. Hypertensive emergencies involving the heart are treated with IV nitroglycerin. Nitroglycerin, to review, is metabolized to nitric oxide, a potent vasodilator that relaxes vascular smooth muscles. And through a combination of reducing systemic vascular resistance via arteriolar dilation and reducing preload through venodilation, you manage to decrease the amount of cardiac work substantially. And this combination decreases myocardial oxygen demand and decreases the fluid accumulation in the lungs, but can result in reflex tachycardia and headaches. Finally, IV nitroprusside is a very potent vasodilator that lowers the systemic vascular resistance primarily. The mechanism is very similar to nitroglycerin, but has the added risk of cyanide toxicity, which can cause diffuse neurologic injury with prolonged use. Furthermore, it's generally not preferable to nitroglycerin, given its lower titratability. Now, the rate at which you lower the blood pressure is very important. And as a general rule of thumb, you're allowed to lower the blood pressure by up to about 25% of the initial systolic blood pressure with your initial IV therapy. That's considered pretty safe. And you may ask, why Arjun? Haven't we established that these patients are having an emergency with a capital E? Well, slow your roll, friends, because in many of these patients, their organs have been getting used to high blood pressure for a very long time. And if you suddenly drop their blood pressure, the organs get less blood flow and become ischemic which is particularly true for the central nervous system. Now, there are some exceptions to this rule. In the most dangerous types of hypertensive emergency, namely acute aortic dissection or hemorrhagic stroke, the blood pressure should be normalized much more quickly because the risk of grave outcomes outweighs the benefit of a slow and steady decrease in blood pressure. As I mentioned previously, severe asymptomatic hypertension is best treated by adhering to a slower rate of blood pressure reduction in the outpatient setting, in order to avoid the complications of rapid blood pressure reduction. Patients may actually need to meet their primary care physician every one to two weeks at first to adjust medications quickly, but rapid reductions in the hospital using IV medications generally does more harm than good. All right, final review, gang. 
why do we limit the amount that we lower the blood pressure initially in a hypertensive emergency? Generally speaking, we limit the amount we initially lower the blood pressure by 25% of the initial systolic because rapid decreases in blood pressure, more so than that, can cause tissue ischemia. Now, if this treatment protocol is followed, the prognosis is generally pretty good if the blood pressure is controlled promptly. Untreated patients, however, have greater than 79% mortality within a year, with a median survival of about 10 months. So, as you can see, rapid identification, diagnosis, and treatment is extremely important. And that's a wrap. Let's see what you learned about cardiovascular physiology with a quick review. First, can you explain the difference between hypertensive emergency and severe asymptomatic hypertension? Both hypertensive emergency and severe asymptomatic hypertension are characterized by systolic blood pressure greater than 180 millimeters mercury or a diastolic blood pressure greater than 120 millimeters mercury. What distinguishes a hypertensive emergency, however, is evidence of acute and organ damage, most commonly to the central nervous system, cardiovascular system, or kidneys. Second, can you state the two characteristic histopathologic changes seen in blood vessels in a hypertensive emergency? Patients develop fibrinoid necrosis of the arterioles and hyperplastic arteriolosclerosis, both of which narrow the lumen of arterioles and contribute to increasing the systemic vascular resistance that perpetuates the hypertensive emergency. Finally, can you describe the overall treatment strategy of hypertensive emergency and how this differs from that of severe asymptomatic hypertension? Patients with hypertensive emergency should be treated with IV antihypertensive drips, such as nicardipine, labetalol, or nitroglycerin, to reduce the blood pressure rapidly. But remember, blood pressure should not be lowered by more than 25% initially. In contrast, most cases of severe asymptomatic hypertension should be treated simply by adjusting oral antihypertensive agents. Now, armed with your newfound knowledge, let's get back to our patient from the intro. A 68-year-old male with essential hypertension presents to the emergency department with blurry vision, confusion, and a blood pressure of 222 over 110 millimeters mercury. What diagnosis do you suspect, and how do you plan to confirm your diagnosis? You perform a quick fundoscopic examination, which reveals engorged retinal veins, scant hemorrhage, and a blurred optic disc. The characteristic papilledema reflects increased intracranial pressure, which you suspect is a marker of end-organ damage secondary to hypertension. Given the systolic blood pressure of greater than 180 millimeters mercury, this means that your patient is having a hypertensive emergency. You order an IV nicardipine drip, and the nurse asks you for titration parameters. You pause for a moment. Managing blood pressure in neurologic hypertensive emergencies can be tricky. Ischemic stroke management requires that the systolic blood pressure be brought just under 185 millimeters mercury, whereas hemorrhagic stroke generally requires that the systolic pressure be brought between 140 and 160. So you start the nicardipine at the lowest possible dose and send your patient for not only CT of the brain, but also CT angiography and perfusion scanning to assess for ischemic stroke. 
When the patient returns from CT, his blood pressure is 195 over 105 millimeters mercury, and he is now able to speak in full sentences. His NIH stroke scale is 1, since he still can't remember the month, but the CTs are negative for either hemorrhage or evidence of stroke. While the definitive diagnosis of ischemic stroke requires an MRI, the rapid resolution of symptoms with blood pressure control strongly suggests hypertensive encephalopathy. So you place an arterial line for moment-to-moment blood pressure monitoring and ask your nurse to target a systolic blood pressure of 165 to 170 millimeters mercury, or a 25% reduction in the original systolic blood pressure. You admit him to the intensive care unit, but inform his family that, in the long term, only proper outpatient blood pressure management will help him avoid this situation in the future. And that's our show. If you like what you heard, make sure to like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Remember, your feedback helps us improve. You can enjoy the full Bricks experience online at www.usmlerx.com, complete with illustrations, questions, flashcards, and active learning. So go check that out if you haven't already. Until next time, friends. 